Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be finishing up our look at the old regime in Canada by Francis Parkman Jr. This is a very, very key text uh, in this overall series called France and England in North America because it really lays down the institutional problems and institutional foundation of French Canada, which uh, now the second... The last three volumes are much more narrative driven and really focus on the conflict between England and France and the ultimate defeat of France in the Seven Years War. So this this book sort of sets up why that failure came. Um, so um, another thing to say is that this is the final part, the final the final book in the first volume of the Library of America collection of this of this work. So I'm, I'm finishing like half of of, I'm about halfway through this series. Um, that's what it means. If you don't include Oregon Trail and the Conspiracy of Pontiac, I'm halfway through in these in these recordings. The the second volume might take twelve or thirteen more episodes. I'm not sure. It depends on how much meat is in here. I know the final volume, Montcalm and Wolf, um, which was the sixth that he wrote, but it was the last chronologically. You know, he he thought he was going to maybe not live that long, so he wrote the final volume. First, and then when he didn't die, he went back and wrote the the middle period, which really covers 1700 to the to 1750. Um, the, it's called the half century of conflict. Um, but that's that's also a very narrative history, very much a military history. Uh, volume six, uh, Frontenac and New France and Louis the Fourteenth, kind of picks up some of the themes we're going to talk about today. But it's also a much more narrative driven book. So I'm going to have to do. Um, you know how much detail go into those episodes we'll we'll have to wait and see i'll have to read them first and and come to a final conclusion but this uh book and especially this last third of the book very very important for laying out the the problem um as parkman sees it and at the end he actually finally gets to a, a very clear contrast with with british north america which i think is really really key to to understand where he's going because he wants to do this comparison of the two but he doesn't want to really write the history of British North America that's not his attention he wants to write about France but it's hard to write that without seeing this titanic conflict that will last half a century most much of the 18th really if you include the American Revolution all of the 18th century uh, was this conflict between England and France which was fought among other places in in the Americas um, so anyways, uh, we've already looked at uh, the first few parts of this book, The Old Regime in Canada, focusing on the Acadia, feudalism in Acadia and the conflicts between different governors there, um, the, leading to the ultimate um, defeat of, of the French in Acadia. That's just kind of a footnote in that section, though. Uh, then we had a long section where I focused in the last episode, which is on the religious history, especially under Bishop Laval. And the, the theme there was this growing conflict, both in what type of church would rule in America and also who would 
who would be the most dominant figure, uh, the governor or the the church? And as we'll see with Count Frontenac, even though he's the greatest of the French Canadian uh, general or governors, you know, his first he had two reign, two terms, and his first term was also brought down by religious conflict. So he was part of a revolving. Uh, a revolving door of governors in New France in the middle of the 17th century that always ran into conflict with the seemingly more powerful church. But it's all in the time, it's the time when Louis XIV is king and he's trying to not only establish his monarchical power over France, over the church, over the Protestants, over the nobility there, he's trying to do that in Canada. So where we start with is a chapter Parkman calls Canadian feudalism. And the point here is Canada in its early founding, in the early way it was envisioned, was a feudal society. And that's, he talked about this a little bit with Acadia too. You know, Acadia was essentially feudal domains and you end up with squabbling among these, kind of like the Middle Ages. Um, and that's true of Canada at large. It's largely a type of imagined feudalism. Now he does point out here that feudalism in Europe was organic. It came out of long centuries of history dealing, you know, having to do with the end of Roman era slavery, the fall of the Roman Empire, the, the, you know, the so-called barbarian invasions, the Viking invasions, all these things contributed to the creation of feudalism in a more organic way in, in, in Europe. In the Americas, it was something that was just simply imposed by the Europeans because that's sort of what they knew. And it was a way to kind of give favors to people. You could give land or title to people in New France and it was just it's just how they do things It was what they knew right but as the political situation in france is changing you're going to get that change reflected in in canada as well and that's the story here especially the last hundred pages of this book this transition from canadian feudalism to what he calls canadian absolutism so um that's it um but yeah let's let's go into some details here let's not just cut it off um, that, that soon. But that's the big picture that we're, we're aiming to. There is a lot of interesting kind of social history here, uh, political history, uh, about education, about trade, about the economy. We already talked a little bit about settlement and this drive to get women to come to New France uh, and how that was organized by the center. And, and again, Parkman's point here is that everything is kind of being led by Paris. Everything's being kind of being led by the king. And he really want him and Colbert want to rule Canada as directly as possible. And of course, the reality is much more complicated. You have Indians, you have uh, traders, you have Cour de Bois, something I'll talk about in the next episode, kind of the, the, the rather free uh, class of Cour de Bois, these um, Parkman sometimes calls them even white Indians because they're so um, assimilated into Indian ways of life, even though they're their kind of nominal loyalties to France and their identity is, is somewhat French, they've been sort of assimilated into the Indian way of life. Um, you have the church, very, very powerful in New France, uh, despite the defeat of the Jesuits during the, the Iroquois Wars. Um, they're, they're still a strong force, and they have a very, very strong and capable leader of Bishop Laval at this time. So, um, yeah, let's, let's jump into a few more details here. Well, here's what Parkman writes about feudalism here. Quote, it was Richelieu who first planted feudalism in Canada. The king would preserve it there because with its teeth drawn, he was fond of it. And because as the feudal tenure prevailed in old France, it was natural that it should prevail also in the new. 
But he continued as Richelieu had begun and molded it to the form that pleased him. Nothing was left which could threaten his absolute and undivided authority over the colony. In France, a multitude of privileges and prescriptions still clung, despite its fall about the ancient ruling class. Few of these were allowed to cross the Atlantic, while the old lingering abuses, which had made the system odious, were at the same time lopped away. Thus retrenched, Canadian feudalism was made to serve a double end, to produce a faint and harmless reflection of French aristocracy, and simply and practically to supply agencies for distributing land among the settlers. So that's a, a pretty clear statement of what Parkman's view here is. He sees the you know feudalism as something that unlike developing organically in in europe where the nobility had real clear foundations of power legal historical in the land and all that here it was more of a a pretend feudalism almost where it looked like feudalism where people had royal titles they had signors they had land claims they had certain rights but ultimately, everything was controlled by the crown. So pretty much Parkman right away says that feudalism in Canada is going to be an extension of absolutism. So the argument is essentially already made here. There's, there is a transition to strengthening uh, moral dominion over, over New France. But kind of a lot of the battle's already been won because a, a natural aristocracy never developed in America uh, for the French. You know, in a way, you could almost argue there was a stronger aristocracy in the planter south, for instance, in the British North America, where you had large landed estates of, of planters with slaves and indentured servants and all that. Now, the way this was done was through um, signors, uh, essentially land grants to people. Now, the big difference here is that these land grants didn't have the population, didn't have the people that could sustain a real substantial income. So a lot of the people who ended up with uh, noble titles or what were called the, like the, the gentlemen. There's a French word for that, gentilhomme, gentilhomme, uh, G-E-N-T-I-L-H-O-M-M-E. -E. Uh, these were uh, people who basically ended up having to make a living however they could in the Americas without really having that strong foundation in the land. They had land, but you know that really was only valuable if they could somehow trade from it if they could have uh, peasants who worked it, but in many cases there weren't that many to really sustain a, a substantial income. So this kind of weakened this nobility uh, to such a degree that we call it a nobility. It, it weakened them, which of course is in the crown's interest, but it also becomes, they become agents of settlement, which is something else the crown is interested in. Quote, his rents were practically nothing, and he had no capital to improve his signorial estate. By a peasant's work, he could gain a peasant's living, and this was all. The prospect was not inspiring. His long initiation of misery was the natural result of his position and surroundings. And it was no matter of wonder that he threw himself into the only field of action which, in time of peace, was open to him. It was trade. But trade seasoned by adventure and ennobled by danger. Defiant of edict and ordinance, outlawed, conducted in arms among forests and savages. In short, it was the western fur trade. And we're certainly going to see in future cha uh, future episodes, especially with the Frontenac book, how these corps de bois, these fur traders, became a bit of a thorn in the side of the of the governors. So that, in brief, is how Parkman lays out uh, feudalism in Canada. So in the next chapter, called "The Rulers of Canada," we get the, a description of the state. Then the state as it developed there, and in theory, it's. The governor is an extension of Louis XIV, and he will have his own bureaucracy, his own agents that will work for him and not and be independent of these 
of the signors, this this kind of feudal elite. So it, in an interesting way, you know, Louis the Fourteenth struggled so much to create absolutism in France because he had all this established power he had to contend against. The Americas created then a an opportunity to to kind of present the the, the perfect theory of this, right? So it's almost not a marchland. For, you know, the, I'm thinking of Bernard Balin all the time and his argument that uh, that British North America was a marchland of England. I mean, you know, it's kind of a place where things kind of went freer, went more crazy, or things were distorted. Here, it's almost like a perfect model could be established. Kind of like how the Puritans, I guess, saw that they could create a perfect model. But even that quickly went out of control. And Hutchinson, Roger Williams, these people immediately started to reinterpret Puritanism for their own um, in their own philosophy and in, in, in a context of, of institutional freedom. Uh, that's despite the very strong state that the Puritans created. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the ideal. Now, the reality is very different. In reality, you're dealing with all many different forces. You're dealing with Indians. You're dealing with fur traders who are often essentially smugglers or essentially working against the law. That's going to come up with the brandy issue and the alcohol issue where, you know, when the state tried to ban alcohol, and, you know, who's that going to hurt? Well, it's going to hurt the fur traders who rely on alcohol as, as a means of, of commerce with the Indians and as their main source of income. So it's almost impossible to imagine them shutting that down entirely. Um, but, you know, they're trying to create this kind of very ideal hierarchical society, limiting any kind of democratic impulses that may, may emerge. Right. So I, I'm guessing where he goes with this is to say that that's not what happened in British North America. Those more democratic forces were allowed to to develop more organically in France. French Canada it was all stifled by by a, a well-established system of administration centered on the king, the governor uh, in some kind of alliance with the Jesuits and the other religious orders uh, in. In Canada. So what you end up with then, I mean, the reality is, of course, Louis, uh, Colbert, Louis XIV can't directly control the governors. The governors are given broad latitude to manage things on their own. Maybe they hear from the king every year, every couple of years. They're pretty much on their own to do what they, they do. And then without some more kind of organic social, like a, almost like a civil society that could check abuses, these abuses then flourish. And that is what he sees as one of the deep problems in the Canadian, the French Canadian state is it's it's kind of it's hierarchical in a context and in a geographical position where that's not going to serve it very well in in the long term. But it is at the same time an ideal reflection of what Louis XIV wants, which is a totally centralized administrative state. So as for the democracy question, Parkman takes it on directly, writing, hence public meetings were jealously restricted. Even those held by parishioners under the eye of the curate to estimate the cost of a new church seemed to have been required a special license from the intendant. During a number of years, a meeting of principal inhabitants of Quebec was called in spring and autumn by the council to discuss the price and quality of bread, the supply of firewood, and other similar matters. The council commissioned two of its members to preside at these meetings, and on hearing these reports, their report took what action it thought best. Thus, after the meeting held in February 1686, it issued a decree in which, after a long and formable preamble, it solemnly ordained that besides white bread and light brown bread, all bakers should hereafter make dark brown bread whenever the same shall be required. Such assembly so controlled could scarcely one would think wound the tenderest susceptibilities of authority. 
Yet there was evident distrust of them, and after a few years, this modest shred of self-government is seen no more. Like, well, so even those meetings get shut down uh, as, as allowing too much self, self-interest, or so, too much self-government among the people of, of New France. Um, so after that, uh, Parkman moves on to a chapter called Trade and Industry, where he um, looks at what he calls the nutrition of the colony. You got the state, you got its kind of feudal leadership established, but now what is actually going to sustain it? Not agriculture, it's not going to be rents, it's going to be instead trade. Now, you have the same sort of problem here, like you want to facilitate commerce, you want to facilitate trade, but you, at the same time, you want to limit it, you want to have monopolies, you want to make sure it serves the interests of the state, and these are going to butt heads and, and, and lead to contradictions in the and just the, the economy of it, because a, a more free economy, Parkman seems to think, would have promoted, uh, you know, more autonomous development of, of industry and of trade. But instead, everything was kind of filtered through absolutism and monopoly. And then you ended up with people who either have to kind of function outside of, of the legal order or, or be hamstringed by it. Now, this is not to say there weren't initiatives and there weren't um, goals, but these goals tended to, to, to not get as far as they would. There, there's talk here of creating storehouses, various types of colonial manufacturing, of which they were very jealous of the English were already having by the, by the end of the, of the 17th century. And really what you ended up with instead was beaver skins being pretty much the sole currency, being the, the major industry that could make any money here. Trade was really all that was that was allowed to develop and it was what they were used to and it was what uh, could thrive in this particular re- relatively controlled monopolistic um, environment. He writes, in the 18th century, Canada exported a moderate quantity of timber, wheat, the herb called ginseng, and a few other commodities, but from first to last, she lived chiefly on the beaver skins. The government tried without ceasing to control and regulate this traffic, but it never succeeded. It aimed above all things to bring the trade home to the colonists, to prevent them from going to the Indians and induce the Indians to come to them. To this end, a great annual fair was established by order of the king at Montreal. To their every summer, a host of savages came down from the lakes in their bark canoes. So it thrives, but this is really all. This is the, this is the nutrition on which the colony rests, but not much else is allowed to develop. And what does this do? Well, it also seems to undermine the establishment of like a peasant or a farming economy because anyone who wants wealth, anyone who wants to make a name for himself, any even family men just went off into the woods to interact with the Indians because that was where you could somehow you could escape these controls, these strictures. You could make your money, um, but it's it's preventing settlement and it's preventing the establishment of cities and kind of a domestic industry in in New France. So um, that is the story here of trade and industry, of just one of stifled innovation and development uh, and an over-dependency on the beaver trade, which of course is going to lead to all sorts of conflicts with the Indians over, over time. Not that the English in North America didn't have those, but they didn't rely on the Indians nearly so much for their survival, which is why they could be much more genocidal in their approach towards the Indians of the frontier, something we already sort of talked about when we looked at Pontiac's revolt. And he's got a chapter, chapter 21, called The Missions, The Brandy Question, and this kind of comes back a little bit to the Jesuits, but really wants to, they want to introduce the Jesuit offense about the, about the, 
the brandy trade. Brandy was just a commodity that the Indians wanted. It was seen as a way of getting beaver skins, right? These coeur de bois, these fur traders didn't hunt beavers. They bought them from Indians, obviously. Um, so you need something that the Indians wanted. And of course you had guns, you had uh, iron tools and different commodities that they wanted. But a big one that there was a lot of demand for was brandy. Um, and obviously there's all sorts of cliches about, about Indians and drink that are certainly have shaped the image of the Native American in Canadian and U.S. history. But um, there does seem to have been some negative consequences of the introduction of large amounts of, of, of relatively cheap liquor, brandy in particular for the French, of course, right? Um, introducing that among the, among the Indians and the Jesuits come out against this very strongly. And the state eventually also comes out against this. But this is something that obviously is not going to be accepted by the vast majority of fur traders because they just need the brandy trade to do their, to do their work. Uh, and the state itself continued to sell brandy to the Indians despite their own prohibition against individual traders doing it. So again, another sort of contradiction uh, is established here. And I think that's what I, the feel you get throughout the final page, chapters of this entire book is the, the numerous contradictions that come out of trying to establish an artificial absolutism, absolutist feudalist structure on Canada in an environment that doesn't really lend itself to that. That would have done a lot better with maybe a, a freer or a more democratic or a little bit more self-rule or a little bit more of a negotiated uh, situation. Um, so chapters 22, 23 kind of go together. They deal with uh, morality and education largely. I'm not going to say too much on these, um, but they are interesting to read. But, you know, essentially the church is given the authority of establishing seminaries, both for the education of a domestic clergy and for establishing a, uh, an, you know, educating the French subjects that are living in New, New France. Um, and, you know, it's happening at a time when it does seem that this French population is becoming a little bit wilder. And so morality, ethics, you know, behavior start to be regulated more and more as we get to the end of the 18th century, sorry, the end of the 17th century in response to this growing wildness of the population. And there's some really great descriptions of, of just like the Cour de Bois. I think they, they emerge in this part of the whole epic as one of the more interesting classes in New France. So I'm glad to say they show up a lot in the Frontenac book. He writes, for instance, wild looking women with sunburned faces and neglected hair run from their work to meet the cure. A man or two follow with sober steps and less exuberant zeal while half savage children, the Cour de Bois of the future, bareheaded, barefooted, and half-clad, come to wonder and stare. To set up his altar in a room of a rugged log cabin, say mass, hear confession, and post penance, grant absolution. Repeat the office of the dead over the grave made weeks before. Baptize, perhaps, the last infant. Marry, possibly, some pair who may or may not have waited for his coming. Catechize, as well as time, the circumstances that allow the shy but turbulent brood of former wedlock. Such was the work of the parish priests in the remoter districts. Ill seldom that his charge was quite so scattered and so far extended as that of Father Morrill, but there were 15 or 20 others whose labors were like in kind, and in some cases no less arduous." End quote. So they are 
I mean, the we talk so much about the Jesuits among the Huron and things like that and the efforts to convert them, but by the end of the 17th century, one of the biggest struggles of the local parish priest or the local Jesuit is just bringing some kind of civilization to the French subjects who are becoming increasingly wild, living out in the woods, interacting with Indians. Uh, some of them might have a couple wives, like a French wife and maybe an Indian wife. These marriages are not being sanctified. Children are not being baptized. The dead aren't getting their last rites. Uh, that's just the nature of living on a frontier, I suppose. But it's something of major concern to the to them, um, as well as like gender morality is a big thing. Um, and there's a whole section in here which kind of gets into the question of gender and morals and etiquette when there's a whole debate over like dances and what kind of festivals would be allowed and, you know, what kind of dancing would be allowed. And the church was really, really invested in in this debate over over balls, over you know what kind of balls would be allowed. And then then there's a discussion of education, which of course also is the domain of the of the clergy in France. So that's the chapter called Priests and People. Then we get kind of a follow-up chapter, Morals and Manners, 1640 to 16 to 1763. A really broad um, timeline. It's it's a reminder that this is the only social history we're going to get in this this epic. I mean, the whole second volume of the Library of America edition is dealing with war and diplomacy and things like that. Um, so, but what does he say here? Well, it's the same kind of narrative where you have these frontier towns where, where morality and manners are from the perspective of the state, of the perspective of the, of the church. Horrible. Idleness, poverty, um, degeneracy, you know, lack of solid marriages, and all these things are struggled with. And how do you deal with that if you're uh, a top-down aristocratic, I mean, an absolutist monarchical system? Well, you do it through through discipline and punishment, which is also what's described in this chapter, which is essentially the the legal system that gets established in in Canada to regulate people's day-to-day -day behaviors and manners. I mean, part of the big, big, bigger problem here is kind of rooted in the chapter in trade and industry, because had there been a space for, you know, a for a more industrial society being established with a broader social network, if not everything was tied to commerce in the Indian trade, you wouldn't have had to have so many people living out into the woods. You wouldn't have had so many of these frontier marginal communities. Uh, so it's kind of like another contradiction that emerges. Like, how do you create a, a proper French society in in a world that doesn't really have the material foundations of that? Parkman's obviously not a Marxist, but we can kind of throw in a, a bit of a Marxist analysis here and just say that, I mean, the material conditions of New France are that of a, a frontier commerce, essentially. That's where the money, I mean, even beaver skins were the money in New France. There wasn't even really any other type of currency being passed around. So all really, really fascinating stuff. And then we get the final chapter, which is just a few pages long, called Canadian Absolutism. And he starts out by saying what we sort of already know, and that is it's really a problem almost of geography. Quote, um, against absolute authority, there was counter-influence. Rudely and wildly antagonistic, Canada was at the very portal of a great interior wilderness. The St. Lawrence and the lakes were the highway to the domain of savage freedom. And thither the disenfranchised half-starred seigneur, the discouraged habitant, 
who could find no market for his produce enough, naturally enough, betook themselves. Their lesson in savagery was well learned. For many a year, a boundless license and a stiff-handed authority battled for control of Canada. Nor at last were the state and church fair masters in the field. The French rule was drawing towards its close when the intendant complained that though 28 companies of regular troops were quartered in the colony, there were not enough soldiers to keep the people in order. The people in order! It's not even about the Indians so much. It's just keeping the French subjects in order. Um, and so that's that's the story. That's the some of the root kind of social consequences of the political system that's established. And he ends this book then with a comparison to to, New, to England, to the English colonies. Because at some point he has to get to why the English were able to do something different that would help contribute to their ultimate success. And once again, Parkman falls into something he falls into a lot, and that's kind of painting New England as British North America at large. And what you can say about New England, you can't say about Virginia, South Carolina, Barbados, Jamaica, even New York, Philadelphia. And he's obviously not ignorant of those places. He wrote quite a lot about Philadelphia in, in Pennsylvania in his Conspiracy of Pontiac, but he still has this tendency to reduce British North America to New England. And he writes, New England colonists were far less fugitives from oppression than voluntary exiles seeking the realization of an idea. They were neither peasants nor soldiers, but a substantial Puritan geometry, led by the Puritan gentlemen and divines in, through, in thorough sympathy with them. They were neither set out by the king, governed by him, nor helped by him. They grew up in utter neglect, and continued neglect was their only boon they asked. Till their increasing strength roused the jealousy of the crown, they were virtually independent, a republic, but by no means a democracy. So that's the difference. It's got some more details here, but that's essentially the big difference between the two. Problematic, certainly, in the way he kind of just looks. He totally ignores slavery, for instance. He has no interest in talking about that, except occasionally there's a mention here and there of, of various types of forced labor, but you know, no real consideration of the impact of, of slavery on the colonies. So anyways, I guess that does it. That is the end of The Old Regime in Canada by Francis Parkman. It's also the end of the first half of our journey through Parkman's epic, France and England and North America. In the next episode, I'm going to be picking up with Count Frontenac and New France under Louis XIV, published in 1877. This was his next volume, which is set kind of in the same period as both the LaSalle book and the old regime in Canada, but it deals with the greatest of the French um, Canadian governors, Count Frontenac, and his wars and his effort to try to create geopolitically, diplomatically, militarily, a great empire for France in the New World. Um, and at that point, I, I, I'm thinking of taking a little bit of a break from recording on Parkman. I'm going to record some stuff on John Kenneth Galbraith just to give myself a break. By the time um, I may, I haven't decided yet the order I'll upload these things in, but I'm going to take a little bit of a break from Parkman just because I'm a little bit fatigued. Um, but I also have a volume of John Kenneth Galbraith's writings and I'm thinking of picking up that just for a break for myself. Um, and then to do some more Lovecraft stuff, which I, I haven't recorded in a little bit of a little bit of time. Um, but by the time this is uploaded, you know, I may continue to upload the Parkman stuff before uploading the, the Galbraith stuff. It's, I haven't decided yet. So um, 
yeah, I think that's going to be it for now. So if you have any of your own thoughts about Francis Parkman's Juniors, France and England and North America, particularly the first half, the first four volumes of it, um, let me know. Send me any comments you want. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but um, that's going to be it for now. So uh, I look forward to talking about Frontenac with you in the upcoming episodes. So I will see you next time.